0: Our reading this morning is by Anglican Bishop John Shelby Spong in his book, The Sins of Scripture. He writes, it has all the intensity of the final battle of Armageddon that's supposed to mark the end of the world. The opposing forces consider each other to be mortal enemies. There is no room for compromise between them, no middle ground, just mutually exclusive points of view. Threats and violence are readily employed as the tactics of intimidation. Both sides appeal to God and claim that this fight is waged in the name of all that is deemed holy. The stakes are thought to be so high that many people on both sides assert that Christianity will die if the other side prevails. Here ends our reading. The words from our reading this morning, they were written in 2005 by Bishop Shelby Spong. But with a few word changes, don't you think they could have been written about our political climate this last week or this last year building to this last week and the uncertain times just upon us. I mean, listen again to those words. The opposing forces consider each other to be mortal enemies. There is no room for compromise, no middle ground, just mutually exclusive points of view. Threats and violence are readily employed as the tactics of intimidation and With a few very subtle uh, substitutions it would end this way but both sides appeal to ultimate authority and claim the fight is waged in the name of all that is true and right. The stakes are thought to be so high that many people assert the nation will die if the other side prevails. Spong, of course, wasn't writing about political differences or party platforms, but he was writing about religious ones, right? And particularly, actually, he was writing in this passage about one issue, homosexuality. Fred Craddock, who is a modern classic, who wrote the modern classic on homiletics, said the preacher should almost never change her sermon to fit current events. Because the sermon, if it's aimed at timeless and enduring enough themes, it will certainly speak to the moment. Indeed, actually. It's been ironic how the sermon I intended to write and will somewhat still give this morning on homosexuality and the Bible feels riddled by the same forces underneath it all that riddle and tear at the fabric between us now. Years ago, I got a call from a local hospital. It is early in my ministry in Washington, D.C., actually, the city so under siege this week. That day is a quieter, personal siege that summons me to the phone. There is a young man, the nurse says to me on the other line. That man is in the psychiatric ward self-admitted for extreme depression and he wants to talk to the minister. He found you online she says. The man has never been it turns out to a Unitarian Universalist Church instead he grew up Mormon. His story begins with two parents lawyers who would later he said be the senior legal advisors to the church at its headquarters in Salt Lake City. At the time he was born, however, they were serving in missionary assignments in Africa. That's where he was adopted. All this young man knew was the Mormon church. But while at university, he'd started to wonder about a part of himself, feelings, and thoughts he was having tender and powerful and important feelings and thoughts and not knowing what else to do about them. He'd started reading and researching online what it meant to be gay. His Mormon roommate, for reasons that are still a mystery, spied on this man's internet search, history and finding sites that were gay-friendly and focused outed the young man's investigations to the elders At the Mormon college they attended, the elders in turn reported all this to the young man's family and his parents gave him an ultimatum. Leave these thoughts behind or leave the church behind. The young man said he argued with his parents explained that he was only doing research, that he hadn't done anything yet or made any choices, that there wasn't anything wrong with trying to understand what was going on with him. But they forbade even these questions. And he made the most devastating, or at least most difficult, I would imagine, choice of his life certainly till that point He left the church. He did so, though, when doing so also meant that he was shunned. And so in a moment, this young man, vibrant and connected to his community in every way, whose university life even revolved around the church, stood completely alone. He was maybe 20. 20. And when he called me, all he had were his questions and his in desire for integrity to wrap around his bare shoulders. Hence the call. The same curiosity and online searches that landed this man ostracized from his past led him to me and to us. So we talked. On a couple of occasions, we talked. We talked about religion a lot. We talked about God, the God I understood, the one the Universalists said and risked their lives to say was known first and foremost by love, a love that would not let any of us go. We talked about a God who would see his whole being and rejoice both in who he might love, and in the gorgeousness and courageousness of his life and his love. We spoke of a religious community, mine, yours and mine, where questioning is a sacred duty, and so was living into our answers boldly. All this I did and do believe. And around this issue and all issues, I could be guilty of the same mistakes as those I heartily critique and disagree with around this issue. I could refuse to look at the facts which for this man were grounded in scripture, one of which we shared a connection to. So the young man and I also talked about the scripture and what it has to say around this issue. Biblical evidence I had gathered for debunking the prejudice that was doing him such great harm. In his book, A Year of Living, The Year of Living Biblically, A.J. Jacobs meets a man, Ralph Blair, who started a group called Evangelicals Concerned in 1975. Blair is gay and he's also an evangelical Christian. And Blair challenges his faith tradition about where they got things wrong, where they used religion to justify cultural prejudices, rather than seeing where the religion That they claimed to believe in should have called them to challenge cultural prejudices and set new ones. And Blair looks for evidence wherever he can find it and holds it up. Jacobs, for instance, describes one of Ralph's pamphlets with its headline on the front What Jesus Said About Homosexuality. And when you open up the pamphlet, there's a blank page. Because in fact, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. According to the four gospel accounts of the life and sayings of the man Jesus, this prophet, teacher, rabbi, talked about a lot of things and passionately so. He talked about the need to care for the poor, the orphan, to free the captive, liberate oneself from moral haughtiness and the evils of judging others. He talked about surrendering what is sacred for material gain and worldly expedience. And he talks a lot about the command sacred and overarching all others to love one another. Which includes refusing all kinds of prejudices. But the person of Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality once. To me, if you're a Christian, especially a progressive one, that's the beginning and the end of this conversation. But we can address for a moment other justifications that might be used. Like, for instance, The bits of Leviticus, otherwise called the code of holiness in the Hebrew scriptures that's often quoted. The same code that says that you should stone your mother for working on Saturday. And when you sell your daughter into slavery, which is permitted in Exodus, what would be a good price for the sale? Which is to say that This is a text whose codes include scores of mandates that we ourselves would never adhere to or want to adhere to. So to begin there is to adopt a cafeteria style approach of picking out only the homophobic texts, which seems not only odd, but morally suspicious at best. There are also mentions often held up forbidding same-sex relations, it appears, in some of the letters of Paul or credited to Paul. But there's a lot of speculation about he meant what he meant when he used the words he did in those letters. That they could well be references to practices of Roman and other communities that are outside the bounds of what we would consider consensual relations, for instance, Or, on the other hand, that they might be referenced to cultic practices at the time that I know I wouldn't want enshrined in my religious community and its practices. But also, Paul isn't the prophet, teacher, rabbi whose teachings and life I find compelling and central. And Paul is flawed, as you and I are, as a prophet and interpreter of tradition and I don't know thank God our letters haven't been canonized for all time. I mean really thank God. More important to me is that There are lots of philosophical and religious traditions that believe that sacred texts are alive, are meant to be alive, and that our understanding should evolve and deepen. And there is plenty of evidence that it has that that is the way we human beings have lived in relationship to our texts through time and should. We know as a nation we justified slavery, found that justification in the Bible and the subjugation of women, too, and some some still do. But that the vast majority of us see now that that was our own small-heartedness and prejudice read in sometimes absurdly aggressive ways into texts that we don't read or see that way anymore. The key to finding our way out of such prejudices and self-reinforcing ignorance and all the harm that gets done when we do that, it seems to me is just to stay curious and humble in the face of the biggest claims we make in life. To investigate, especially even maybe the claims and evidence and arguments of those who would disagree with us. This week, we saw all the harm of the opposite way of being play itself out, didn't we? We saw the danger of digging in one's moral and intellectual heels and refusing to examine the texts, the facts, to listen. To do so, even as your allies in positions of power around the country, judges, and representatives and election officials who were supposed who were exposed to the so-called evidence and arguments even though they called you to see how they and you with them had been misled had been drawn into both prejudice and lies and asked to sacrifice your most sacred shared national commitments as a result Oh, the tired scripts that we human beings seem to play out. Hubris, the tendency for confirmation bias to see only what confirms what you already believe like saying the world is flat until an astronaut orbits you around the entire planet and and even then maybe dreaming all that was a hoax or calling covid-19 a lie until your neighbor or husband or you find yourself on a ventilator but not before for sure For sure there is a humbling vulnerability in seriously questioning what you knew or you thought you knew and relied on. I'm sure we've all had one or more of those moments. But those moments we also know what a righteous life looks like, really. That it isn't about grandstanding and breaking windows and erecting gallows on public land. And it is not about selfishly upending the compact of shared government and national texts to get your way. No. True, righteousness is courageous and bold, but it's the kind of boldness That's grounded in a deep humility. The kind that wonders when carnage is the price we are willing to pay for our truths. Wonders in that moment whether maybe ego or greed or ignorance or fear or hate has crept its way into our moral equation. and wakes instead to a faithfulness to healing and wholeness. Frankly, righteousness is more like what I heard on the other side of that phone so many years ago from a man barely 20 years of age. That courage of being willing to leave everything else behind even. Everything you knew and had relied on, because you came to know that truth as false, as heartbreaking as it might be in that moment to come to that realization, as much as it would upend your life, and to choose instead to face whatever followed from what you came to know as true. Even if all it left you with in that moment was honesty and integrity to wrap around your shoulders as you began again. The other way, any other way as we have seen is to choose, to quote the Bible, to possibly gain the whole world but Lose your soul. This summer, I got another call from a teenager who would name and echo back 25 years something that I hoped had died out. A young person struggling with some tender new understanding of themselves shared that nascent understanding with three close friends whose faith, they said, meant that they could not be supportive. Echoes of a moral certainty that was willing to destroy lives and sacrifice what is truly sacred, our care and tending and love for one another rather than question on what ground it was that they stood. When will we learn? So this morning, let's ring our gong one final time. For those of us in this community and beyond who have been harmed by or in the name of religion and a false and hateful certainty. For all who've been wounded by toxic theology The weaponizing of religious language or the distortion of sacred texts. For all whose authentic selves were not welcomed or honored in religious community. And for the defamation of community itself when it is defined by exclusion and judgment. We hold in our hearts especially the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary and intersex members of our community. May we live into the call as a faith community to heal this collective wound. And may we move toward the call to radical welcome, to beloved community, that we, I hope, are becoming together evermore, among us and beyond us, in the world we touch. So for healing and wholeness, we ring our gong one last time this morning.